Welcome to episode number 31 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring director and cinematographer Ernest Dickerson. We discuss his long collaboration with director Spike Lee, which spanned six films, including his debut feature She's Gotta Have It, School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, and Malcolm X, which earned Denzel Washington a Best Actor nomination at the Academy Awards. We'll also discuss Ernest's work directing television, which includes The Wire, The Walking Dead, and the new Amazon Prime series, Bosch. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, and you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash jogroad. And now we join director and cinematographer Ernest Dickerson as he discusses his experience at NYU Graduate School, where he would go on to meet his future collaborator, director Spike Lee. Well, the the great thing about NYU was that um, you actually had a chance to make films there, so which is one of the reasons I went. You know, you have uh, several weeks of in the classroom, but then after that, you go out and uh, the first year everybody has uh, um, has to make three films. At least that that was when I was there, <clears throat> which was in the um, in the eighties, and everybody had to make three films that first year. Um, and uh, dealing primarily visually the first year, so you don't really get a chance to really deal with sound until the second year. Sound. In a, as a narrative tool, so um, so I think the thing that, that I got most out of it was um, thinking visually, being able to you know thinking visually in terms of telling a story, uh, primarily using uh, the camera, um, and uh, it's something that I've I've continued to this day. You know, as as a director, my main tool is the is the camera, and I try to always find. Were you uh, were you focused on cinematography at NYU, or were you sort of um, also directing as well? Yeah, well, I was a cinematography major, but no matter what your major is, everybody has a chance to uh, to uh, write and uh, direct their own films. So I did write and direct my film, and but and I photographed films for other students. Um, you know, some people. You know, we'll go from sound in one film or, you know, they, they direct a film and then they do sound in another film and they'd help out as gaffers or grips or whatever. But pretty early on, I kind of staked, uh, uh, staked myself out that I wanted to photograph other people's films. So, um, so that's pretty much what I did. Yeah. Was that uh, sort of how you ended up teaming up with Spike Lee? Uh, for I believe it was called Joe's Bedsty Barbershop. We cut heads. Yeah, that was his. That was his graduate thesis film. I had actually shot a film for in the second year for Spike called Sarah, um, and that was the first time we worked together. That was uh, that was, he did an adaptation of a short story uh, about sibling rivalry at a Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, we photographed that at his 
uh, at his uncle's house in Brooklyn. And uh, that was the first time we did that. First time we worked together. And then the following year, I did uh, Joe's Bed's Die. I'm curious, is that film available anywhere? I've been trying to look for it, but it seems uh, like it's sort of, I don't know if it's on DVD or anything. Uh, Joe's Bed Yeah, Joe's Bed Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, you might be able to find it on YouTube, maybe, but, um, but I, it never got a video release that I know of. Uh, yeah, it never got a video released. It premiered at the New Films, New Director series in, uh, in New York. Uh, that's where it was first seen, and, um... And it did win him a Student Academy Award, but it never, it never got a video release. So I don't know. Check, um, check YouTube. Yeah. I haven't looked. It might be on there. Oh no, definitely. I'll take a look. Um, I was curious as, as about sort of your collaboration process with Spike Lee, and uh, from those initial student films when you were working together, uh, was there anything that you guys sort of clicked on in terms of how you saw things visually or how you were sort of in interpreting cinematography? Well, we spent a lot of time talking about movies. You know, we, a lot of times we went to see movies together. You know, new, a new interesting film coming out, we'd sometimes go to see it. Um, so, you know, we were interested in a lot of the same films. We were we were big fans of, uh, of uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, big fans of his films. Um, Francis Coppola, we were big friends fans of his so um <clears throat> you know we would always talk and um and um uh you know go through the process you know usually before you start a film you look at other movies you know just trying to you know get on the same page in terms of what the style of the film is going to be and uh, so we did that and it's something we did all the time through all the films that we did together up to up to and including Malcolm X. Yeah. I'm curious, um, you know, because there is such a it feels like there's always like kind of a vivid visual style uh in those films that you worked on with Spike Lee. Uh, I was curious too as far as um a cinematographer's collaboration with a production designer and also uh a wardrobe person. Uh, do you feel that that's very important initially to to speak to those departments in terms of having a color scheme or sort of visual references that are consistent? Oh, definitely. That was, uh, that was uh, of paramount importance. Um, I think the first time it really became obvious was in, uh, when we did Do the Right Thing, because uh, to portray the, the heat of the summer, I was going to use color, primarily um, colors that were in the warm earth tones, uh, yellow, reds. Uh, and stay away from cooler colors, which would be blues and greens, and um, and so that was a coordinated effort with uh, myself and and Ruth Carter, the, the costume designer, and uh, Wynn Thomas, the production designer. So, yeah, it always has to be that way, and it has to be a, a harmonious a harmonious whole. In the film before Do the Right Thing, we attempted to do that in school days. Uh, the problem was that um, about a week before we started shooting, we lost 90% of our locations. So 
So all of our plans kind of fell apart there. We tried to make it work as best as we could. Um, but, you know, but a lot of times, the first time I saw a set was when I walked in to shoot it without ever scouting it beforehand. So it was, but do the right thing and then uh, Mo Better Blues and uh, Jungle Fever and uh, especially Malcolm X and Malcolm X. Those were all, you know, pretty planned out coordinated between uh, the different departments yeah yeah on uh she's got to have it which was um it was shot mostly in black and white though there is uh one uh sequence that's shot in color but when you're working in black and white uh you know as you talked about sort of working with production designers and wardrobe and coordinating uh is that even more difficult because i guess sometimes you don't know how something will what the end result will be when it's photographed in black and white in terms of uh photographing a particular color well, you can get an idea because uh, you know that certain tones, uh, certain colors that, that translate on the grayscale um, as the same shade of gray, those are, uh, those are things you have to worry about. Uh, the main problem with black and white is separation, separating your subject from the background, from the wall, whatever. And it's either you, you do that either by backlight you know, we have a, an edge light on the person to help them separate them from the background, or by working with the background, um, controlling the uh, the tones in that background in your lighting. So, um, so you have to be just more careful about that because uh, if you have blue, a certain shade of blue and a certain shade of green, they might translate as the same shade of gray in black and white, and that's the thing you don't want to have happen. You don't want it to all blend in together and I was curious um, on Do the Right Thing. This may have just been kind of a a rumor that I read, but was it originally intended to be shot uh, at Universal in L.A. instead of in Brooklyn? No. No? No, it was always intended to be uh, Brooklyn. Okay, so then then in in Brooklyn, uh, you guys sort of built, I guess, what was it? You took like a a block and then you had built all the sets sort of within that uh, block. Is that correct? Yeah, we found... Well, I came on pretty early in um, in pre-production um, because uh, I had to control, you know, really gain control of the look of the film pretty early on. Since the problem was we were going to be shooting for about eight weeks and I had to make it look like one day. So I laid down the ground rule that uh, whatever street we shot on, it had to run north and south. Um, and the reason being is that um, since the sun travels from east to west, one side of the street is always going to be in shade depending upon the time of day it is. And if I have a cloudy day, it would be easier for me to make a cloudy day look like the shaded side of the street Um, because there was no way I was going to be able to pump up a lot of light in there to make sunlight. So so it was north and south. And then... um, we were lucky to find uh, the street that had that uh, vacant lot on the corner. Um, actually, I think I did demand north and south, and then they found the, the block that had the vacant lot on the corner that ran north and south, and that's where we were going to build the pizza parlor. So that's the only structure that was built, which was Sal's Pizzeria. Uh, some of the other houses on that block had been in a little bit of disrepair, so uh, some of those were fixed up. And uh, the homeowners got 
fixed up by the production. So couldn't stay that way after we left. Yeah, I was curious. Some did you use a lot of wide lenses uh, mm-hmm. when when you were shooting close-ups? Mm-hmm. Yep, a lot of wide-angle lenses. Uh, because I, I love that that look. Uh, I'm curious. Was that is that always something that you've been attracted to uh, using wide lenses for close-ups? Um, it just seemed to work for that film. Um, I, you know, I do like wide-angle lenses. You have to be careful with them because they do they do distort. Um, but since we were trying to really go for the fact that this is the hottest day of the summer with the heat and just the extremity of the emotion that the hottest day of the summer sometimes causes. Uh, it was the color and the wide-angle lenses, and we did a lot of Dutch angles in there. Um, but, um, yeah, I like wide-angle lenses. I'm a big fan of the films of Orson Welles, so, um, and nobody used wide-angle lenses better than he did. And also Terry Gilliam uses wide-angle lenses uh, really beautifully. Yeah, you get a, a greater depth of field sometimes as well, which is uh, which can be you know interesting visually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely do. Uh, when you're when you were working with Spike Lee on uh, throughout all the films, were, did you ever create uh, storyboards or shot lists that were very specific? Yeah, um, actually, the in do the right thing, the uh, the entire riot at the at Sal's Pizzeria was storyboarded. Um, in Mo Better Blues, the uh, the fight scene in the alley, um, and how it intercut with uh, Denzel playing uh, playing his horn, playing his trumpet in the club, and how it was all mixing together. That was all storyboarded. So, yeah, a lot of times, um, for both of those times, I think Spike let me design those sequences because he just got so busy in his producing duties that designing those scenes he asked me to to do those so I worked with uh, Randy Balsmeyer who was a storyboard artist um, and you know some other scenes in Malcolm X like uh, the early scene when uh, Malcolm's uh, Malcolm's uh, father's house is raided by the Ku Klux Klan um, we storyboarded that because there was going to be a visual effects uh, component to the shooting that evening when the it was a visual effect shot with the clans when they're riding away over the hill and we had a, a huge full moon behind them so um so yeah always uh story, storyboard for complex sequences like that so that everybody knows what the shots are going to be what the action is going to be um what their different departments are going to be required to do yeah. um it's just the best way to to do that especially you know, when you're working on a tight schedule, you know, um, and you have to get it, you've got to get it done quickly, and things have to work first time every time. Yeah, in uh, in that regard as well, uh, when you are storyboarding, uh, do you also leave room in terms of um, the staging of the actors, or is that do you feel like that's also very specific when you're storyboarding? Usually, in the um, in dialogue scenes with actors and stuff like that, sometimes we would have an image, you know, Spike might draw one image that he wanted to have in there, you know, how two people related to each other, because uh, sometimes, you know, how they spatially relate to each other in the frame is another way of telling the story. And uh, we would try and um, uh, try and get that into it. But usually with dialogue scenes, you know, you block it with the actors and your shots come out of that. Yeah. 
Uh, one of my favorite films of, uh, of Spike's is Jungle Fever. I think there's some really incredible performances, and uh, I think Samuel L. Jackson ended up winning uh, a special prize at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm just curious, sort of, there's so many different worlds in that film. There's sort of, um, you know, sort of with the, you know, there's uh, the, the world of sort of Samuel L. Jackson within his drug addiction. There's the Italian neighborhood. There's the black neighborhood. I'm curious if, when you were going into it, if you sort of saw a different uh, visual style for each of those worlds? Um, well, you know, the... Uh, well, the neighborhoods kind of decided that, you know, the, the areas where we were shooting, because you, um, um, you had the Italian-American neighborhood and, and the types of homes that those are. Uh, those are usually... You know, single-family homes. A lot of single-family homes with aluminum siding, uh, which seems to be a, a big thing in, in in New York and New Jersey. Because <laughs> I'm from New Jersey, and I've seen a lot of homes with aluminum siding in them. Um, and then the uh, the Taj Mahal. Uh, we really wanted to make that place really extreme. The Taj Mahal is where is the, is the huge crack hall where all the crack users were were going in there when they were, you know, all using their crack. And um, the visual that I was going through was uh, the air filled with smoke, but also at every frame there would be, uh, uh, you, you could see the lighters flaring up as, every, as each person was lighting up a pipe. And for me, that just represent, represented a soul that was just dying. So we, all, we always... Uh, made sure we had that, and I and I lit that with, with primarily a cool light, a bluish light, just to make it feel um, more alienating. And then the contrast with the with the warmth from the flames in the middle of that. So that came out of that. Um, the the home that Ossian Ruby lived in. It's a it's a huge uh, old apartment building. Um, I think it was called the Actor. And um, it just had that old uh, wood panel, old New York architecture feel. So that kind of dictated a whole other feel there too. So, so a lot of times, you know, it comes out of you know how you how you're being affected by the environments when you go there to to uh, to shoot. Um, you know, you you go and you scout the locations, and and then finally when you when you decide on what locations you're going to use, that's when the plan starts coming together and the feeling you get from each place sometimes determines what the lifestyle is going to be. Do you have any uh, preference between uh, working on a constructed set versus working in a, in a practical location like in a, in a real house or you know even a real office or real street? Um, I do like location. Um, and even sometimes when I do have control over the building of a set, sometimes I'll try and shoot that set almost like a, like a real location, you know, give myself the limitations. Sometimes you can't do that, but it, it, sometimes it's nice to be able to take out a wall. Um, but I do like I do like shooting location. Um, it, it presents its own set of problems, um, but uh, I like being out in the world. I'm curious about uh, Malcolm X, which is uh, you know, a huge, epic film, 
and uh, you know there are so many time periods that you're moving through in the film, and uh, so many sort of different sort of areas of Malcolm's life. Uh, did you see that at all in terms of sort of how you would when you were going through the script and prepping, sort of how you would shoot each section of his life to sort of make it uh, come off different? Because I really feel there is kind of a a distinct uh, kind of visual sense to different sections of the film. Yeah, in Malcolm, there were one, two, three, four, five different uh, five different styles, um, and for me, that really represented, um, as, as you noted, the different phases of Malcolm's life. Um, we went into Malcolm X. Actually, Malcolm. Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X was one of the films that Spike and I first talked about where we wanted to make, you know, what we hoped our future would bring us. Uh, when we talked about the movies we really wanted to make, we both said we wanted to uh, do a, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so we were really happy that we were ultimately able to do it. But, um, uh, Going into Malcolm X, we knew that most people didn't know who Malcolm X was, uh, that there had been so much mis disinformation about him over the years, um, that we wanted to really just put him in people's faces and, and uh, so the people knew all about him. Um, so the earlier part of his life, I was trying to go for the look of old Technicolor. And that would be, would that be going over the lens or being going over uh, the lights that you had? Uh, no, that was over the lens. Over the lens. That was over the lens. And uh, I had frames made up with uh, with the nets on them. And uh, we would just fit it into the map box. So, um, and then when he goes to, um, in prison, I was going for a colder look. So I, uh, I shot with uh, tungsten balance film, but I used...
Elijah Muhammad, I went for a, a, a clear, a very clear, very sharp look, no filtration, um, and correct, uh, you know, uh, using tungsten fixtures with the tungsten light, or if I was outside, I would put the regular 85, so I was going for a very clear look. And then um, when he goes to, makes his pilgrimage to Mecca, and to, um, yeah, when he makes his pilgrimage to Mecca and Egypt, we actually shot that in Egypt, and I started using a, a slight diffusion filter to just uh, soften the image a little bit. So each one was just to try and uh, give a certain look to each phase of, of Malcolm's life. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a beautiful film. Uh, I believe it, it screened at the, the TCM Classic Film Festival recently. Yeah, yeah, I was there. It was a, it was a good screening. It was good seeing it on the big screen. Uh, it was a print. Print was a little beat up, but uh, but it, it was still a, a, a good experience, you know, seeing it on the big screen again. I hadn't seen it like that for years. Yeah, when when you were talking about sort of uh, with Spike Lee, uh, your passion to make Malcolm X, was that before She's Got to Have It that you had been talking with him about it? Yeah, it was actually not long after we first met, after our first in our first year in film school. You know, uh, you know we. We, we kind of, when we met each other, we knew that, uh, I knew he had gone to Morehouse and he knew I went to Howard and our schools are, are rivals at, at homecoming games. So, you know, we started off by ragging each other on our schools and everything. But then eventually, you know, the, the conversation goes towards film and what, what we were really there for, you know. Um, you know, talking about our dreams, you know, what we really wanted to do. And we both mentioned that, yeah, you know, it'd be great if one day could do the autobiography of Malcolm X, but what are the chances of that happening? Probably not at all. So, um, so when it did happen, it was, it was amazing because uh, I'd already directed my first film. I'd already directed Juice, and then Spike got Malcolm, and I basically said, oh, no, 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 nobody's going to shoot that movie but me. And so... Spike very generously <clears throat> delayed production on Malcolm by about three weeks to give me time to finish up my post-production on Juice. Wow. He was, uh, no, he was really loyal to you in, in letting you do that. Yeah, yeah. Still, you know, we're still good friends. Uh, seeing the film again uh, after so many years, what did it uh, bring back for you in terms of... Um, what, what do you feel was sort of so powerful that you saw, you know, seeing the film again that uh, really resonated with you? Well, it was, it was seeing it with an audience again, you know, seeing audience reaction, hearing the audience uh, react, uh, hearing that soundtrack on uh, coming, you know, out of uh, big speakers. Um, you know, the full, the full cinema experience, you know, you know, after seeing it for years and as as uh, DVD and Blu-ray copies on on home screens, on small screens with not such a large crowd, it was just great how the how the audience really uh, responded to it. And uh, you know, it's you miss that after a while. You know, after you know after a film goes to video, that whole communal experience of of experiencing that movie on the big screen with a whole bunch of other people in that shared experience. You, you, you missed that. And it was good to have that happen on that day. Yeah, 
and the great performance uh, by Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm curious for you, uh, you know, now that sort of digital technology has really uh, sort of eliminated film in a sense, uh, do you have any nostalgia for working on film or do you see a lot of possibilities uh, with the use of all these digital cameras like Reds, Alexas, uh, you know, even DSLRs? Um, I mean, you know, so far I've been kind of lucky. Actually, I just finished shooting a show that's shooting film. Really? Uh, yeah, a movie for uh, Amazon. I'm in a TV show for Amazon called uh, Hand of God with uh, Ron Perlman and Andre Royo. And uh, we were shooting 35 on that. <laughs> Walking Dead shoots on 16 millimeter. So in the, in the television world, we've been able to bounce back and forth quite a bit. Um, I'm planning on shooting a film in November, December of this year. We'll probably shoot digital just because we'll be shooting out of the country and the logistics of trying to do a film with film shooting out of the country in the Caribbean, which is where we'll be, would be uh, quite horrendous because, you know, there aren't as many film labs as there used to be. So um, so that is a, a bit of a problem. But uh, I love film. Um, I'm kind of glad that I'm not a cinematographer anymore because I don't have to worry about learning you know, the digital, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of digital. So all I can do, all I have to do is just concentrate on working with a cinematographer to tell the best story possible with the digital, digital cameras. I love the Alexa. The Ari Alexa, I think, is the best uh, digital camera out there. Wow. Why do you think you prefer uh, the Alexa over some of the others? Because the Alexa feels more like a film camera. It acts more like a film camera. curious uh, when you transitioned from uh, primarily being a cinematographer to then directing uh, feature films and television uh, was it difficult for you at all to sort of delegate uh, sort of the cinematography role to someone else or did you always feel like you were uh, you were sort of in that job in a sense or sort of in that role um, it, it wasn't it wasn't hard because um in, in pre-production and pre- preparing the films, uh, I was able to get very specific with my cinematographers and 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 really decide on the look of the film early on. Um, 
you know, actively work with them in shooting tests and uh, and figured out the look of it and how to achieve that look. And then once we got into principal photography and shooting the show, uh, I would just let them do it because by that time we, we were already on the same page. Um, usually before I start a show, I come, I have, if I have, an, I have an idea what I want the show to look like and um, I always have reference materials, uh, books. I have a collection of books of photography where sometimes I'll, I'll hunt some down. Uh, we'll always look at movies, um, deciding on, on things that we like and things I want to do. So uh, to me, each film should have its own style. But I, since I'm primarily uh, a visual person, I think that style should come from me. So, um, and to me, that's part of the fun of it, coming up with the with the visual style of of of, of the movies. So, uh, working in in television, uh, you know, where sort of every show has their own look, whether it be The Wire or Walking Dead or uh, you know, Bosch, uh, all these shows sort of have a, a very distinct look to them. When you're coming on as a director. Uh, to direct uh, various episodes, do you feel like you're trying to sort of maintain a certain look, or at times can you also feel free to sort of uh, uh, embellish on that look and sort of add your own uh, signature to it? Yeah, I'm always trying to find ways of, you know, working within the style of that show uh, and find interesting images. And, you know, and and that comes from uh, different locations. Sometimes you find a new location uh, where action is taking place and, uh, and just find interesting ways of shooting it. So, um, but I always, uh, you know, I always uh, look at the shows and, and different directors and within that style still are able to achieve different things. Each director has a different way of working. So, so but, you know, within that style, within the limitations of that style, I always try to find a way of making that work. Um, and it's, you know, coming from the locations, coming from, you know, costumes, special costumes if necessary. Um, you know, you find ways of, uh, of getting your own thing in there somehow. Yeah. Uh, is there a project, uh, that you're working on right now at the moment? I remember you mentioned, uh, the show for Amazon, but there was also a film as well. Yeah, there's a film that I'm planning <clears throat> to shoot on the island of Curacao at the end of the year, into the beginning of next year. Uh, Curacao is a former Dutch colony. It's off the coast of Venezuela. Um, I'm going to be doing a movie called Double Play. Uh, what is the film about? It's uh, set in Curacao in 1973. It's uh, politics, sexual politics, um, on the island of that time, and how things come to a head on a hot summer day during a, uh, uh, a game of dominoes or uh, between four gentlemen. What's, uh, what actors uh, do you have attached? Well, we're still working on it. We're, we're getting our cast together. Uh, we're out to some people right now. Um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see how, how we're able to do. But we're, we're still working on that. 